welcome back to Create Out Loud. I'm your host, Jen Loudon, and this is a podcast about the nitty-gritty of the creative life. How do we get out of our way? How do we deal with disappointment? How do we market our work? How do we make money? And I tried to have a variety of guests on in a variety of fields to tell you how to do that. I'm a writing coach and longtime creativity mentor, best-selling author. I've written nine books with about a million copies sold. I've been in this game for about 30 years, making a good, good living, supporting my family, putting my daughter through college, all that kind of stuff. So this week, we have Susan Shapiro. I found Susan Shapiro through her book, The Byline Bible, which is a great book to learn how to write short pieces for major outlets to help your writing career. Or for those of you who are writers, do not tune out because it's also a great way to build your business, to sell your art, etc. And then I had Susan on because she wrote a second great book. And this one is more specifically for writers. It's called The Book Bible. And she gives you an overview of every major genre and what are the pros and cons of how to write it, how to get published, etc. There's nothing else like it out there. But the third reason I wanted to have Susan on is she's written like 17 books in all different genres. And if you've been listening for any length of time, you know I am obsessed with how people reinvent themselves when they get stuck, when they're not having the fulfillment or success they want. So Susan is a poster child for that. And again, you can apply that to all your creative fields. So let's dive in and learn from Susan Shapiro. Susan, you are the best-selling author of numerous books, and you have written 17 books total, but they span so many different genres. We've got self-help, we've got memoir, we've got co-authored books, we've got fiction. How have you continued to explore and to reinvent yourself over and over again? How have you given yourself permission to do that? I started out writing poetry and I had certain obsessive subjects that I wrote about, which was horrible breakups and ridiculous addictions. I had a mentor who told me, you have too many words, not enough music. And so I was very depressed. I had a degree in poetry and had done it for 10 years and wasn't having much luck. But luckily, he was a New York Times editor who then started buying my essays on the same topic, which was my screwed up relationships and my addictions and depression. From the essays, which I wound up figuring out how to sell to newspapers and magazines and more recently webzines, those then wound up becoming memoirs. I did have to reinvent just in terms of trying to figure out how to make a living And I was lucky that I had good teachers and good mentors and bosses at jobs that directed me. But I've actually been writing about the same thing since I was a little kid. I always tell people, write about your obsessions. But one of the things that we also hear in the marketplace is, and this isn't just for writers, of course, because this is a show with with all kinds of creators are listening to, is you have to keep giving the audience what they want. Has that worked for you to have memoirs and fiction and books for writers that we're going to talk about shortly? I always actually tell my students, write about your obsessions. By the time you try to jump on a trend, the trend will be over. I don't really think you should try to follow what you think people want. I think you do have to follow your own obsessions and write about what you're obsessed with, write about what you care about most. I tell a lot of my um, students and clients to write the thing that only you could write. And if somebody else could write it, let them write your obit. If you're going to die in six months, what's the most important thing you want to leave the world? And that actually helps people sometimes figure out what book they should work on. Hey, usually I come in, you know, with one of my cool little asides and I go, oh my God, wow, amazing. But you know what I'm going to do right now? I'm going to come in and I'm going to beg you for a review. I need a review. I need this podcast to get discovered. We've only got 50 reviews and I know you love it because you email me and you put it on social media and you tell me in lots of other places. So just go give me a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Apple is the best. You just need to be logged into your account. So if you're listening to 
this podcast right now through your Apple app on your phone, you're logged in. And if you want to go write it through your iTunes, just log into iTunes and pow, there you are. Thank you. What's interesting, I will say in terms of following the market, sometimes if there's something in the news that connects to something in your life, that might be a good time to write about it. I wouldn't say make it up if it's not already there. But just for an example, I one of many things I tried to write about is I'm a technophobe and I had a big problem at one point with my emails. I had like 60,000 emails that just kind of got lost in space and I was freaking out about them. And then all of a sudden on the front page of the New York Times was Hillary had 60,000 emails. So that was the time I knew to write about my own thing. I wouldn't have made it up if it wasn't already there. I have several students who are from Russia or the Ukraine or spend time there. Now is the time to write about that experience. You can follow the news in terms of if there's anything in the news that connects with your life or your story, that might indicate it's a good time to write a short piece about it. But I think that um, writing about your obsessions, I think you would write better about a minor, weird, quirky obsession than you would trying to write about a global issue that you're not really connected to. It's so impossible to write anything or create anything that you're not connected to. I don't know how people do it. You have been, as you've alluded to already, very self-revealing as a writer in your different books and memoirs and, and everything I've read of yours. I know from working with writers that it's often very difficult to be that vulnerable, to tell the truth. How have you figured out how to help people do that? It sounds like it comes pretty naturally to you, but I might be wrong about that. I started out with confessional poetry. When you start out with confessional poetry, and I'm from this kind of very conservative, redneck Jewish suburbia where you're never supposed to say anything bad about anyone or the Cossacks will come get you. Of course, in sixth grade, I fell in love with confessional poets who said all these horrible things about themselves that you're never supposed to say, you know, like they fuck you up, your mom and dad, or I'm tired. Everybody's tired of my turmoil or dying is an art. I do it exceptionally well. Fell in love with that. They say you become what's missing. And then luckily by studying poetry, and that's what I have my graduate degree in, I was surrounded by, I mean, studied with amazing confessional poets who were at NYU. So that was actually encouraged. I remember Joseph Brodsky, the late Joseph Brodsky, the biggest insult he would give you, he would give your work is there's no blood here. Luckily, I came up with that. As I said, poetry led to the personal essays, led to memoirs. That said, there's actually a lot of things I would never write about. And I have rules about what I write about. So people think I'm so open, but I'm really not. My rule for good first person writing is I always say you have to question, challenge, out and trash yourself more than anyone else. There are things, you know, I'm, I'm not stupid. So there are things that wouldn't help me or that would hurt me or that would hurt my marriage or that would hurt someone in my family or something like that. I do have a filter. And there's also a difference between writing and publishing. So sometimes I'll feel compelled to write something, but that doesn't necessarily mean I have to publish it right now. And I have quite a few students who'll write something and I'll say, listen, this is powerful and beautiful and you should go for it. And then you should put away for a while because you're 20 years old and you don't necessarily need to have out there that you want to murder your abusive ex. That's not going to help you get a job tomorrow. Mm -hmm. You have to really say to yourself, what's your goal? You have to be careful because if your goal is to work for the New York Times, the New York or the Wall Street Journal or Oprah, places like that, there's certain things maybe you don't want to put out there under your name. It looks like I'm I'm more open than I am. It's I had a really good therapist and actually he was an addiction specialist who helped me quit cigarettes, alcohol and um, drugs. And, and the line that he said when I asked him, how do I stay clean and healthy? He said, lead the least secretive life you can. But that doesn't mean that it's not calculated. I definitely think a lot before I publish something that's going to be offensive or hurt somebody in my family. How do you help students who can't get the truth on the page, who are keeping too many secrets from the reader to bring the writing alive? I don't actually have that problem. I mean, the first assignment that I give in my classes for 25 years is write about your most humiliating secret. 
And I say to people, you don't have to be naked for that when it doesn't have to be sex. I'll ask questions if they can't come up with anything. Did you ever get fired from a job? Or by the way, medical problem. Were you ever in the hospital? I mean, who's not humiliated in a hospital gown? Or did anyone ever break up with you? Or what's the worst travel misadventure you've had? I'm trying to think if I ever had somebody who couldn't write that. I actually had someone who wrote a great piece, but then definitely did not want to publish it. And Mm -hmm. in that case, he wanted to do third-person reporting. And I helped him do third-person reporting, which actually led him to a big book from Simon & Schuster. I don't think people have trouble writing it. Some people don't want to publish it for good reason or don't want to publish it with their name on it. I definitely ask all my students, what's your goal? Nodding a hard yes. I'm going to go even a little bit deeper. Every time you sit down to create something, if you're a writer, to move your project forward, if you're some other creative discipline, you're having to write for your social media, for your artist statement, etc. What do you want to get out of it? I think sometimes we think our art and our writing and our creative efforts have to be so lofty and the lofty and the inspired and all of that stuff like Sue Monk Kidd talked about a few episodes ago is so delicious. And yes, we need that. But we also need to be really practical. What's the call to action? Or what do I want to learn here? Or how am I helping my reader if I'm moving you know, a bigger project forward? We need to allow ourselves to be ravenous, like Heather Harvelosky talked about, to really feel into our desire and own it. And then own it for that day's work or that piece of work. You know, so a lot of people have different goals and we can talk about pseudonyms. Okay, here's a super oddball question. I read a piece of uh, you wrote for the New York Times in 1998 and you mentioned that you had Kittles as a girl. I did too. And I don't really know anyone else who remembers what Kittles are. So I just had to say, hey, Kittle girl. (laughs) Because I was obsessed with Barbie and the funny story. Yes. Funny story about that piece was I was describing my Barbie kingdom because I was the only girl and I was obsessed with Barbie and I had a lot of them. So I described how my mother's boot boxes would become their different rooms and her Kotex would be the bunk beds. So the male editor took out the Kotex reference. And I said, why? And he said, because it's a family newspaper. I'm like, there wouldn't be any families if there wasn't Kotex. Go ask a female editor because it's an image. Anybody can see that they're perfect bunk beds for Barbies. We came back and he's like, all right, Kotex stays. That's great. I love that also because you're fighting for your work. There's times that I've been able to do that. Times that I probably fought for stuff I didn't, wasn't the best fight to pick. And times that I didn't fight for my work. I'm usually very willing to compromise. And I talk, I have rules with students and clients also. So for example, if you write a piece and you get the edit back and you hate it, and students are all often very upset, I'll say, okay, write the letter that says, you screwed up my piece. This isn't my voice. This is what I wrote. I'm putting it back, get it all out. And when you're done, tear it up and then say to the editor, thank you so much for your brilliant. I can live with most of them. There's a few mistakes I corrected. Here's the new version. Again, you always have to say, what's your goal? I have to assume that an editor or an agent who's been doing this for 20 or 30 or 40 years knows it more than than you. And a lot of my students have been doing this for a minute. Writing is very collaborative. If you, if you want to get published in a newspaper, magazine, or through a publisher, they have their own formulaic ways of doing things and limitations and boundaries. And I definitely try to fit in. And there's, you know, each genre has its own rules. If you don't like the rules of essays, then, you know, write poetry, write prose poetry. When there's a difference between what you can sell to the New York Times, or the New Yorker, New York Magazine, or Washington Post, or Boston Globe, versus what you could put on your blog, or what you could put on Facebook. Not a censorship, there's you think of what your goal is, and then here are the rules attached. And, and truthfully, 
once you're a bestseller, you can pretty much write whatever you want. You know, they'll publish your laundry list next if you sold a million copies. And one of the things I was really impressed with, with your new book, The Book Bible, I put it on my list of great writing books. It's so comprehensive. Thank you. How did you do that? I mean, how did you take on every genre with such conciseness? One of the funny stories about my career is that I kind of kept failing upward in a lot of different genres. So I wanted to be a poet and I did get a poetry book published, but then I was sort of a failure as a poet. And then I tried to be a comedy writer and I did a a humor book and that didn't sell well. And then I tried memoirs and those one was a bestseller years later, but they really didn't sell enough copies. I love what Susan's about to say. And I just think it's such an important theme. I know I go on and on about it, but I see myself and so many other creatives who spend months or years so unfulfilled, maybe not making the money or having the impact we want because we're not willing to switch our identity, switch our form up or change our marketing. I have a client who came to me because she really spent a lot of money on marketing that didn't work. And I brought to her Pam Slim's book, The Whitest Net, the episode, have her listen to the episode I did with Pam. And we started brainstorming ecosystems for her to find that she could go and present free classes, present less expensive classes that naturally led to her talking about her longer, more expensive classes. It's working so much better. So we've got to be willing to switch things around. And I tried novels and then those weren't successful. If you're a huge success, like if you publish a a novel and it does well, they're going to want your next novel. If you publish a novel and it sells 5,000 copies, they're probably not going to want to get your next novel. I kept studying it and analyzing with my therapist and my mentors. And I basically bounced around a lot trying to figure out what should be my next move. And at one point when nothing was selling, I did co-authored books and those started doing well. And one of those was a New York Times bestseller, Unhooked, an addiction book. At a certain point when I looked over my career, it was I was actually embarrassed and I thought I looked like a literary dabbler with ADD because I'd been in so many different genres. I've actually, I'm in eight different genres of books. I thought it was a sign that I didn't do well. What I realized, which was exciting, was that it's absolutely perfect for teaching. When I'm teaching writers, because I have a very rare overview, the difference between every genre, because sometimes I would start a book as a memoir and it wouldn't sell. So then I try to make it a novel and it wouldn't work as a novel. So then I try a self-help book and would it work as that? Or would I try it as an anthology? So I tried so many times and I saw what worked and what didn't. I realized is, boy, this is going to be great for when I started teaching my how to sell your first book classes and seminars. It it really was so helpful because every single day someone will come in and they'll tell me a story of their memoir, but it's not really dramatic enough to sell Mm -hmm. a memoir. I'll say, well, if you fictionalize it, you can make it much more dramatic. Or wait a second, a lot of what happened here, you're talking about happened when you were 12 years old. Is this a middle grade book? Or if if it's idea driven, is it an essay collection? One of the things that I thought was a weakness turned out to be a strength. And when it came to writing the book Bible, they always say you should teach the class you wanted to take and write the book you wanted to read. When I was coming up and trying to figure out books, yes, there's great books on how to write a memoir, how to write a novel, how to write a book proposal, but you'd have to buy 20 different books to figure out how do I decide if it's a memoir, an essay collection, or I should fictionalize it. It's really hard to figure that out. It took me years and lots of mentors and shrink appointments and writing group sessions. And what I decided to do with Book Bible was to give people the overview that I never got that I didn't understand until I failed and, you know, and kept selling and trying again. And when it's this exciting feeling, because then all my mistakes are good for something, which is, you know, they could help people avoid the mistakes. And I have students as young as like 21 who've gotten book deals because I was 43 when I sold my first hardcover to Random House. It's funny, I say to my students that writing is a way to turn your worst experiences into the most beautiful art. 
And interestingly, that's sort of what I wound up doing with all my mistakes and all the career frustrations is I can turn it around so it can help other people avoid those mistakes and, and learn things in a much faster way than I did. Okay, I think what Susan's saying is just brilliant. I just really want to bring it home to you how important it is to keep reinventing yourself. I also want to bring it home to you that you love podcasts, and I have found a podcast that I love. I'm not a huge podcast listener. I'm super picky. This one is called Live Free Creative Podcast, and it's hosted by author and intentional living expert. Don't you love that? Miranda Anderson. She is fantastic. In her weekly show, she dives into topics like living your life on purpose, decluttering your closet, making friends as an adult. She gives really cool recommendations. Like I bought a great swimsuit and a great t-shirt from her recommendations. It's like sitting down to coffee with a smart, normal, good friend. And she has great stories and great advice. And an episode recently that she hosted or or recorded that I really loved, she shared about how life is a choose-your-own-adventure book. And I'm like, absolutely, which goes perfectly with what Susan Shapiro is saying right now. So it's Live Free Creative. And in every single one, she tries to give you something, like I try to give you one or two takeaways. She tries to give you a new mindset tip or a habit, something that will make you feel more alive and free and easy. And it's just like a permission slip, you know? And I think we all pretend sometimes we don't need those, but we do. And she releases her new episodes every Thursday morning, wherever you listen to podcasts or visit livefreecreative.co. Not calm, but C-O. All right, back to Susan. No never means no. It means revise it, make it better, and then send it to a different editor. If you're willing to ask for tough criticism, listen. I've never seen a piece of writing that can't be made better without Mm -hmm. feedback or help. And if you're willing to try what you just said so beautifully about the book Bible, if you're willing to look at it in different forms. Different forms. Sometimes it's even less minor. Like just for an example... When I was doing my first novel, Speed Shrinking, it wasn't quite working. A novelist friend who I admired read it and said, put it in present tense. And I'm like, I hate present tense. I always use past tense. She's like, try it. So I didn't believe her and I had already brought it into my writing group. So I took the first two pages and I put them in present tense and I reread it to my writing group. And they were like, wow, this pops. Something as minor as changing it from past tense to present tense. Huge difference. Another difference. One book I had wasn't working. A different prologue changed the whole tone because if you start with a vulnerable Mm -hmm. narrator that people like, then they were much more emotionally involved. You know, so sometimes there's, oh, so I have Unhooked, which became the New York Times bestseller. That started out as a memoir. We weren't able to sell it as a memoir, but a really smart ghost editor that I hired to help me said, you know, you could keep most of this in first person and tell, um, it was with my addiction specialist, tell his stories. But if you framed it as a self-help book, so there'd be an introduction and then keep each chapter the same, each case study, but just put at the end a little more notes on how they made the changes, then it could be, and then maybe a little Q&A at the end. So I would say 90% of it was the same. And then it sold as a self-help book. And then it, it was a bestseller. If you go to the right person for advice, we're not even talking about a full revision. We're talking about revising 12 pages. And then all of a sudden, a project that you thought was dead is completely resuscitated. I have a chapter about it. 
I call genre fluidity. You know? Oh, well, I want to talk about that because this is a question that I get so often from writers because they always want to be a new genre. They want to be a hybrid genre. And they trot out my last book, Why Bother, behind my head. And they're like, but you have lots of personal stories in it. Isn't it a memoir self-help genre? And I'm like, nope, it's a self-help book. The purpose of the book is to help you bother. And I used personal stories to illustrate it. So can you tell me about how you handle that question with your clients about, but I want to make a whole new genre. (laughs) Right. And what happens is, so I have this, how to sell your first book, five week online class. And I bring in a lot of editors and agents and people throw out ideas. And very, very common is that they, they cross genres. Yes. And pretty much almost every single editor and agent, top editors and agents all over the world are zooming in. Pretty much they say, if it's a debut book, what shelf of the bookstore does it go on? You have to tell me that. You have to tell me that to get an agent. You have to tell me that to get an editor. Once in a while, it can change or there can be a little bit of crossover, but you just have to pick a genre. And even when you pick the genre, you don't even want to put comparable titles in a different genre. You just want to pick a genre and stick to it. Now, by the way, if you pick a genre, as I did with memoir, and then it doesn't work, then sometimes it makes sense to switch the genre. But in that case, then I've switched to self-help or I've switched it to novel. And I would say once in a blue moon, there is somebody who is able to do it, you know, who's able to cross genres in a smart way. A lot of times, if you look carefully, what you'll find is that the reason the author was able to do it is because they had a short story in the New Yorker that went viral, mm. for example. So um, or I'm thinking of um, Carmen Maria Machado, brilliant author who does cross genres, although she tends to pick one. So she's writing a book that she calls science fiction, or she's writing a book that's horror and then maybe it seems as if it crosses genres but there's still they still called it one thing but again if you really want to disagree then i always say the best way to start a book i mean it's certainly much easier to sell 3 pages than it is 300 so if somebody wants to argue with me i'll just say okay just publish 3 pages come back and show me that you published 3 pages in a great place and you'll win the argument and it's very <laughs> rare again because whether it's the new yorker the atlantic Paris Review. I mean, there's just sections. There's the poetry editor. There's the fiction editor. Yes, once in a while, there could be a long prose poem, you know, or rhyming iambic pentameter or once in a while. But then again, show me which editor took it for which section. And then that tends to answer a lot of questions. Fairly simplistic at the beginning, which is before you make a name for yourself, before anybody knows you, you usually don't get to invent your own genre. You fit into the formula that already exists and you don't tell an editor how they should change their formula. You you beg them to let you in, you know, and to pay you. But once you're out there and once you go viral or once you have a huge audience, then it's a little bit of a different story. And then you have more leeway. But starting out, I really, in a very nice way, try to explain to my students that it's just not going to benefit you to do a hybrid is not going to benefit you. And if it is going to be a hybrid, let the editor and agent decide, you know, like you pick a lane, try to sell your book that way if you have luck. And then the editor or agent want to, you want to ask them questions or they want to pipe in. Just for an example, I sold a book called World in Between, which is a co-authored middle grade book about, uh, with Kenan Dravinsevic, a story of how he was a victim of ethnic cleansing in the Balkan War. And when we started it, we sold it as nonfiction. So it was a memoir. But when it came to, we have this fantastic editor who had a few other books that were based on true immigration stories, but they had more luck marketing them as fiction. So they asked if we would consider it and we would, and it turned out to be a great decision. But again, that was coming from a marketing standpoint from people that had already were already buying the book. And it definitely helps to learn the genres, which is part of the reason why I wanted to explain what each 
category was. Even, for example, within kids' books, there could be 10 different categories of kids' books. And if you want to sell a kids' book, you pretty much have to know what age is your reader. You mentioned going viral, and that make, brings me to the Byline Bible, which is another great writing book that I have right here with lots of little tabs in it. And one of the things that, that I really love about the Byline Bible is that you give people this idea of writing something that's I guess I don't want to say short, although in general, they are shorter word counts, but there's something about the way you describe it that people can really wrap their minds around. Well, the truth is that for a new writer, your brand new writer, you are much more likely to sell a piece that's 300 words to a thousand words than you are 3000 or 5000 or 7000. And again, I get a lot of people who come to me and they say, tried selling my work and it's just none of these editors are open and it's impossible to do. And I'm like, what did you send out? And the first piece was 8,000 words and they sent it to all the newspapers. I'm like, point to an article in the newspaper that's 8,000 words. And if you do, is it by the most famous columnist writing about a war and you're writing a piece about like giving up diet soda and it's 7,000 words, you know, you know, people say, I want to get into the New York times. I'm like, well, go buy it and come back and point to the section in the column that you want to be in and show me. And then I'll tell you, you know, I've been in 12 different sections of the time. So I could tell you what the parameters are. There's a great line, the harder you work, the luckier you get. So if you want to, you know, you have to think if your goal is to write for a certain publication, newspaper, magazine, webzine, literary journal, read it, you know, read it really carefully and see what they're running and don't pick, you know, like I had a student last night who compared his work, a parable title, Walter Mosley, not a good comparison, aside from the fact that the guy was white and that it was his first novel, you know, so you want to look at debut work, what a famous journalist or novelist or essayist or poet could do isn't necessarily what somebody starting out could do. So you want to pay attention and there's really easy ways to do it, which is you could just at this stage of the game, Google somebody or look at the bio and see if it's early work. I understand the impulse to cross genres. And if you're writing for yourself, you can, you know, if you're serious about getting a big audience, compromising is is smart. What are some of your favorite places right now that your students are submitting shorter pieces to using the some of the ideas from the Byline Bible? You know, it's pretty much been the same since I started. So it's the mm -hmm. big papers and magazines. So um, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Boston Globe, and then there's Salon and Slate, which I've always liked, and the New Yorker mm -hmm. Magazine, all the Condé Nast and Hearst Magazine. So it's pretty much the big newspapers and magazines I pay the most attention to because those are the most likely to pay the most money, get you the most attention. And also at this stage, I'm teaching a lot of people how to sell a short piece that's going to go viral and lead to a book. So for example, my former student, Tiffany Drayton, wrote a great piece called Black American Refugee for the New York Times opinion section, mm -hmm. and that turned into a great book. And it literally like two weeks after the piece ran, she had a book deal. So that happens a lot. I have another student named Christina Wyman. Tiffany's book was a memoir. Christine Wyman wrote a great piece. It was actually the humiliation essay, and it was how she was during the pandemic, she actually liked wearing masks because she had had deformity in her jaw that led to surgeries when she was a kid. And she was always self-conscious about it. She liked wearing a mask and she sold that to the Washington Post and led to a book, a children's book about which takes her back to the time when she was a kid and when she was going through all these surgeries and medical problems. All of the newspapers and magazines, all the top ones use freelance writing. You have to know what sections are open and which editors to try and the length and how to pitch them and stuff like that, which I try to include as much as I can in the book Bible and Byline Bible. I say go to the top first. I mean, I also have some great editors who've come to speak to my class from uh, Newsweek and The Independent. NBC.com has a great column called Think that a bunch of my students have broken into recently. 
it actually keeps me young too, because I have so many new editors zoom in. And every time my students get published, I joke with them. You think I'm helping you get published because I'm nice, but I really want to steal your editors. It sounds like you're really great at networking and connecting. I actually, I don't like the word networking because I feel like networking is like, there's sort of like a materialistic motive. Yeah. So I don't really feel that way. I, you know, it's funny because I used to be an amateur matchmaker. And one of my books is about, I fixed up 30 marriages and I was fixed up with my husband. So somebody called me, how did they say it? They said, I was a genius literary matchmaker. So that somehow sounded that's better. great. I love that but genius I, literary matchmaker. But interestingly, I can't do it. Like people have asked me, do I want to be a literary agent or do I want to be an editor at a publishing house? And I can't really do it for money. I like to teach, but I only can do it if I feel it. So if I love wow. somebody's work, if I love the piece, then I want to help them publish it. And I want it to see print, but it's not like people offer me a lot of money. And if I don't like the person or the work, I can't do it. It has to be organic. And so when you're in a class where people are reading work out loud and I'm having editors come to speak, it just seems to happen very naturally. You know, and the goal of the class is to get published. An editor will come and speak and they'll be very, very specific about what they want, how many words, how they want to be pitched, what kind of lead do you need, how timely does it have to be, how much they pay. And then the students will, you know, try pitches and essays that editor. So that makes it much easier. It sounds like a real theme for you in your career that it has to be organic. You have to love it. It has to mean something to you. Truthfully, there's so many fakers out there. There's so many people that are inauthentic or that are sort of hacks. Nobody wants to be that, you know, so I'm never going to encourage somebody to write something boring just to get a quick paycheck, even if they don't believe it or even if it's not good, because that doesn't help me. That doesn't really help their career either. This reminds me of a piece that I wrote recently for my email list. Are you on my email list? It's so good. It's so useful. I share great resources. I write great stuff. And I tell you what I'm up to. If you ever want to take a writing program or get coaching with me, just go to jenniferloudon.com. And there's a great freebie all about getting unstuck. It's kind of a part quiz kind of answer thing. Oh, it's good. All right. Anyway, so I wrote this piece about the first time I had my writer's heart broken. It was when I was 17 years old. I was in college. I took my first real writing class with the great late Gothic Southern writer, Harry Cruz. And he would give us feedback on our writing in front of the whole class. Oh my God, I kid you not. I can still like get a dry mouth. Can you hear it? Just a dry mouth even thinking about it. It was excruciating. And I'm never saying we should be cruel as teachers, as mentors. It's one of the reasons why I'm the kind of writing coach I am, because I know what it's like to have your heart crushed. But he did tell me I had phoned my story in, and he was right. I didn't care enough. I was a hack in that particular moment. We all have those moments. No harm, no foul. But it's a reason why we need community. We need coaches. We need mentors. We need friends. We need people like Susan saying, come on, what's real for you? What do you really care about? What's really true? Or her great prom, what's the most humiliating thing you've experienced? We've got to care, especially nowadays when there's so much noise out there. There's so much content. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be profound, but it has to mean something. We have to care about it. Oh, and if you want to read that piece before you sign up for my email list, you can just go to jenniferloudon.com and click on blog and you can read some of my previous writing to see if you want any more of that stuff. For me, what's exciting is, and I have a very impatient personality, which kind of works out well as an editor because, so I'll read someone's work and it'll be like cliche, boring, boring, read this before, read this before. And then one paragraph will be, oh my God, I never read that before. Wow. This gets my attention. Now start with that. Now I want to hear more of it. And it's just out of complete impatience. 
I don't have a lot of tolerance. I get bored quickly and I don't have a lot of tolerance. So if it's boring, I'm just skipping. It's when you get the great line or when you get the great theme or the great title. Sometimes someone will come up with a great title. I'll just be like, oh my God, that I have to read. And it stands out so much Mm -hmm. because most stuff is boring and crappy, you know? So, and you want to aim for, you know, you always want to read what you want to write, be writing. So you want to aim for something that's engaging and exciting and electric. I've read in many places that you get the comments, people who take your classes or read your books have learned more about making a living maybe in one session or five weeks or one book than they did perhaps in their entire MFA program. What's the biggest mistake you see most people make when it comes to making money as a writer? I had a great therapist. So I was very, very, and I really, really highly recommend therapy. And there's all kinds of counselors and mentors and change agents and gurus. So I really highly recommend if somebody needs to talk to somebody, lead the least secretive life, you can really change my life and fix my life. So that's one thing that really, really helped me. But I would say that Something really common is I'm writing what I want to write and I want the New York Times and the New Yorker and Random House to buy it with no sense of what the market is, with no sense of what they publish. As we said, you know, I'm sending 7,000 words of fiction to the New York Times who doesn't publish fiction and doesn't publish 7,000 word pieces from freelancers. So there's no understanding of the externals involved. That's one of the reasons why, like in my five-week online class, my pitch class, I'll have 15 editors, 15 different editors come in and they're really, really specific. And so even people in other fields that have never done this before can really quickly get a sense of this is what editors want. This is how you pitch them. And this is the length. And the same thing in my book class, how to sell your book class. So I'm bringing in great editors and agents and they're just really very, very honest, you know? So no, they do not want a memoir about how you quit drinking for three weeks. Go to the store and realize that there's 10,000 memoirs about people who quit heroin and alcohol that have been clean and sober for 25 years. And where does yours fit into what's already out there? I think the thing that helped me the most with my therapy, with crazy relationships, with sobriety was definitely all my work, all my writing is getting tough, honest criticism. I try to recreate that. I was trying to write a novel for a long time, seven years, and nobody was buying it. Everyone, all these editors and agents were saying, you're so funny, this is so great, but they weren't buying it. And so finally I went to my friend, Laura, who's very honest, a Michigan journalist friend, very smart, very honest. And I just said, okay, read this and tell me the truth. So she said, okay. So she read the novel and she said, number one, you have no imagination whatsoever. Why are you writing fiction? Write nonfiction. You've only written nonfiction. Number two, this is about two sister-in-laws. That's a really boring subject. Write about sex. Number three, you're ambivalent about this person and you write better about people you love. So I said, so it's not going to sell. She's like, put it away. So I went home swearing at her thinking she was an idiot crying. And actually I was reading High Fidelity and there was this little scene in High Fidelity by Nick Hornby. The guy talks about how he goes back to re-meet his top five heartbreak of all times to see what happened. And I thought, oh, when the guy does it, he looks at the girl and thinks, oh, she's still hot, I'll still screw her, and then it's over. I thought, God, if a woman did that, there'd be the 20,000 pages of the journal entries in the therapy session, and she'd kept have kept the gum wrapper from the first date. And then by weird coincidence, I re-met an ex, and I started writing, taking notes. Really, within 24 hours of hearing that criticism that I didn't like and wasn't going to even accept, I started formulating Five Men Who Broke My Heart, which was my debut memoir about sex and people I love that was nonfiction. Sold to Random House for a great advance. Actually, just saw, just got optioned again for a movie. It just worked by being honest with me. And she wasn't being mean in any way. She was just telling me the exact truth. You know, it just really, really helped me. And so I try to do that for people. And some people get offended and I don't mean it offensively at all because my goal is makes me feel brilliant and happy if, if somebody has success, one of my students or clients has success. But so I would say asking for criticism from the right person 
and then hearing it, letting it sink in and hearing it. And then you don't have to take it, but try it. Cause sometimes you try it. And like I said, in one or two pages, it's so clear that this is going to take you further. But I would say out of the people that, that have worked with me, the ones who've had success, I think fast have been the ones that are willing to take criticism and, and revise. How do you balance your teaching and literary matchmaking with your own writing? Well, it's kind of this perfect schedule at this point, because what I do is I write all day, seven days a week, and then I teach at night. So it's really fantastic. And then I grade papers after the classes. This was really done in therapy because when I did addiction therapy, I really had to change every single thing in my life. I was a chain smoker, got high and drank for 27 years. I really had to jigger things around and and really rethink a lot of my habits. And so the, the therapist really, really helped me. What we figured out was that everybody's different, but my best energy for writing was right when I wake up in the morning. So what I do is I try, I mean, I don't have kids and my husband's a writer for the last 15 or 20 years. I don't take day jobs. I take night jobs so I can wake up and just write. Actually, the teaching is perfect because it's a different energy. So I'm at the computer writing, but then what's so great is that when I go to class, you know, I'm lonely sitting at the computer, sitting at the typewriter all day. Then I go to class and I love big classes with a lot of people and that has great energy. Then I come home and I'm still kind of hyper and that's a really good time for me to grade papers. And then sometimes I do, I call them walking office hours around the park with my students and I'll do that sometimes at like nine or 10 or 11 at night. You know, I want to exercise and get out and that's a really good time for people to pick my brain. It took a while to not be a people pleaser and to get the schedule. There's an anthology called The Modern Jewish Girl's Guide to Guilt and I wrote a piece called Quitting Guilt. And it starts out, I spent the last two years saying no. And in those two years, I got everything I wanted. Quite often, I wake up in the morning and Monday morning, I'll have 75 line emails from students and clients wanting me to help. And I'll just say, on deadline, email me at night, erase it, go away, delete. I don't pick up the phone. And if somebody wants something, it's like, I'm busy. That's not my job. I'm on deadline. And luckily, again, my husband's a writer, so he understands that. And I don't have children to take care of. I want to interview you at 10 in the morning. And I'm like, oops, I'm not available. And look, look at us, 5 p.m. It becomes more of a pattern. I learn how to do it more. And it's not negative towards anybody. It's just a way of me staying sober and happy and comfortable and getting all my work done. And I had this great mentor at one point when I told him I had writer's block. And he said, plumbers don't get plumber's block. Don't be self-indulgent. Every day you just get up and get to work. And then he said, page a day is a book a year. And that really stayed with me in my book. Some of them are shorter. So actually a page a day is like a book and a half a year. So every day I get up and I have to write 250 words. It doesn't have to be good. It just has to be on the page. And then I give myself deadlines. For example, I have two very great writing groups that are very tough critics. So I just have to finish my revision or my chapter, whatever I'm bringing into the writing group. I have to finish it in time for the writing group. And that's how I structure giving myself deadlines. But so the great things about classes and and writing groups are that it gives you a deadline because you have to have the pages in. When my students say, how are you so prolific? I say, my trick is I'm not afraid to suck. My first drafts don't have to be good. They just have to be on the page. My job is to get them on the page. My writing group's job and my teacher's jobs and my editor's and agent's job is to tell me what's good and how to edit. But my job is just to get it on the page. And with my students, their job is to get it to me on the page. And it's my job to tell them the direction. It's taken a long time. And I always joke with my students that luckily at a certain point, $100,000 or more of therapy kicked in and you get it by osmosis, you know, because I'm so analytic that I tend to analyze everybody anyway. It took a long time to be able to make a living. And again, I started at 20 in New York and I didn't have my first hardcover book out until 43. So it took a while, but once I got it, now I understand it and I can help share it. I can tell other people how to do it. Susan, I like to ask my guests the last question. What do you want to learn next? That's a great question. I guess I still want to learn how to get better, you know, how to, how to make my own writing better, you know, and part of what's so exciting about having 
critics in my life and editors and agents who I trust is that I really, I love it when they tell me the truth and push me further. There is something I love it, you know, called a change agent, which could be a teacher or a mentor. Someone like you will help somebody channel their creativity in a deeper, better way. And so I love that. I love having people like that in my life. My shrink actually used to say to me, I hang out with people you want to be. It's very exciting to every time I do my writing group, which is twice a week, I, I can't wait to hear what they're going to say. And even sometimes it hurts. And I argue, but then when I think about it within 24 hours, it's so much better. That we still want to keep growing and learning. And you said earlier, having these agents and editors and and come to your classes keeps you young and vibrant, but so does learning, don't you think? I think that's a part of it because I definitely think that my students are constantly surprising me. The thing that's the best about it is that it's really doable. Like I've taught students from age 14 to age 95 who get published. It's not that hard. There, There might be a lot of external factoids you sort of have to understand. Mm -hmm. But part of the reason why I've actually wanted to teach a creative nonfiction or journalism classes where we're doing short pieces is because so many people get published and so many people for the first time. And it's so exciting when that happens that it's like this vicarious thrill. It has been fantastic talking to you. I learned so much and I really appreciate your time and all your expertise and how you've taken your experiences and turned them into so much that can help us. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.